We will be in Revelation 19 eventually, not there. Toward the end, I think, is where we're going to hit that. Um, but we're dwelling with and uh, worshiping God as we look at our heaven series, continuing the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, again, this is kind of back to what we've been talking about. You know, The idea is that you, your goal in life, your purpose is to know God. And this whole series is about, there's a lot in the Bible, especially about this new heaven and new earth, that we maybe don't know. And if we do know more about it, we get to know God better, which kind of fulfills your purpose. So it's kind of a, a, a good thing. And uh, I do have a chart. Uh, they're out there if you want one. Um, we're, we're down here in this final heaven and final earth. Um, when you think about that, you, you put that, Final heaven equals the final earth. We, are, we just don't think about it that way sometimes because when people die in the Lord now, they go to a place that's not the final heaven, but what we call a current heaven or uh, paradise, uh, different words in the Bible. Um, so ultimately, you're not going to have to leave home then to go see God because he'll be there and you'll be there. and He won't have to leave home to visit us. You can go back way in Ezekiel 37, which thir 36 and 37 of Ezekiel talks about the new covenant in some ways. And God says, I will make my home among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is kind of cool. You know, the I will be my God and they will be my people. That's in the, in the first five books of the Bible. But this, I'm going to be home among them. Because you think about the temple was a place where God said he would dwell with people. But in the new heaven and the new earth, that's his home. You know, what, what do you call home? Isn't that an interesting thing? Is it your house? Is it the people in the house? Is it your dog? What is home? Yeah, and I think home is going to be where God is. That's what we were created to be. You think back, go back to Eden. Where was home for them? Well, it was Eden, but it was where God was. And ever since the fall, the sin, we're always kind of longing for home because we're really not there yet. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul actually uses this verse. He says, And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's, he's quoting Ezekiel and showing us that we are God's temple. I thought the kids did a really good job today. In fact, we probably could have just stayed with that and just scrapped this, right? They were really getting into it. And that's just great. I love that. Um, the idea of, you know, where is God? Well, one of them said he's in heaven, which was kind of really good. I didn't plant that, but that was what the sermon was supposed to be about. And then one said, well, he's in our hearts. It's like, oh, yeah. He's there too, isn't he? And this is what this verse is kind of telling us. Um, the idea that God is in us. We are the temple. We're not, you know, we, we have to be careful with what that means. The temple is the dwelling place of God, and that's what this is talking about. It's a metaphor from the Old Testament to show what the Holy Spirit does to us and is with us. He's, he's in us in some ways. Um, so even now when someone dies in the Lord, as Paul puts it, they go to a place in this universe we're currently unable to see. And, you know, people might have trouble with that. If you go to lunch today and you talk to somebody who hasn't heard this, they might think you're a little weird. One of my, uh, just an advice, don't worry about if people think you're weird. In fact, if they don't, that might be a problem. I mean, just be 
don't get spiritually weird, but it, it's, it is true, isn't it? That there's a place where people who die in the Lord are with who, where God is and we're not able to see at least all things being equal on a normal basis. So how do we know it's there? God revealed that to us many ways in the Bible uh, and sometimes through the Spirit and sometimes both. So in the new heaven and the new earth, we don't have anything to separate us uh, from God. Uh, nothing's going to separate earth from heaven either. They now become one. There's not a difference in those. Romans 8 is probably your quintessential end of that, of what we get in Christ, because one of the things when you think about home, whatever you use that word, being away from home, away from those people you care about for even short periods of time can be something you don't like. It's a separation, you know. And even though those that have died in the Lord, there's a temporary separation. And you kind of want that to come back. But when it comes to Christ, nothing can separate us. You know, I love the way Paul puts it. He said, no, despite all these things, he's talking about suffering we go through and the way this life is not perfect. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that love that we get from God and then we give back to him, nothing can, nothing can take that away. They can't take that away from you. Satan can't take it away. The IRS can't take nothing. Nobody can take this away. It's, part, it's, it's, it's something that God is in control of. And it's the old adage, you, you, you've heard this probably where when somebody seeks God, you know, and they, they reach out for him. And he, he, Paul even uses that metaphor, reach out for me. But instead of thinking we're reaching, you know, if God is up here and we reach and grab him, I always think about the other way. We reach up and he grabs us. And if this is his hand, nothing can separate you. If it's our hand, we can let go, right? If it's his hand, he won't. We even had a song, it was an older one, Oh No, You Never Let Go. You want to start singing it? You we'll wait for another day for that. But uh, So God's power is strong enough, and that's obviously the way we see God, that it's, he's going to, we're not separate from him even now, but it's not the end of the thing, right? We still have to trust in what he tells us and uh, we see him around, obviously, in, in other people and, and through the Spirit. But, you know, the, the, the resurrection, you know, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The power over death is something we talked about last week. So the Bible is clear regarding heaven. And this is where we have to start. This is where most philosophies are, start wrongly we start with us but the bible doesn't do that the bible starts in the beginning god that's where we need to start start to understand god then you'll understand yourself you start to understand yourself you may or may not get to god so heaven is about god the the, the, the world is about god the universe is about god everything's about god and once we get that in our head, everything else starts to fall into place. 
we, we looked at Isaiah a little bit, we looked at Ezekiel a little bit in the past. What happens when they encounter God, even in a vision? Are they cocky? Humility comes real quick when you're in, in the presence of the Holy God. I always like, remember when Peter had that, you know, he has Jesus there. He's still trying to figure out who Jesus is, which is pretty much what the Gospels are helping us with, taking, the, taking us by the hand and watching the disciples figure out who Jesus is, going from you know, ra wandering sage to rabbi to Messiah to God. And he's kind of in the middle there, and he doesn't know anything. You know, this is early in the ministry, and, you know, Jesus, as far as we know, was a contractor, carpenter, um, not a fisherman, and certainly not a commercial fisherman. And remember, he tells Peter, take that, put the boat out in the middle of the day, which is just goofy. You know, the fish are all down. You're not going to catch anything. And then Peter's like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, whatever, we'll do it because you said so. Then they get the great catch of fish, and John and James have to come over with their boat, and they get in there. And you think this is cool. You know, when something good happens, it's like, you know, Jesus, this is wonderful. You know, you want to go, let's go out again. Let's go do some more fishing. But what does Peter do? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Something's happening in his heart. He's starting to realize he's not, this, I'm not worthy of this. And that's what we find out. It's about God. Not us. And that it takes a while for us to, to change to fall in the meter in those things. So, you know, many ideologies, they miss this. I, this is a good book. I, I read it. Uh, Mitch Album wrote it uh, probably a couple decades ago. I, I, think, I think they might have made a movie out of it. The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Anybody read that? Um, I, I'm not saying this isn't a good book. I'm just, I'm going to throw it under the bus a little bit. But <laughs> it's, it's a good book. It it's just five people. It's, it's essentially, I guess, to summarize, it's it, this person finds these five people and it kind of shows how their life's intersected and how that could help, you know, those relationships. Um, and that's good. It does sound good. And, and I think in it, for all things being equal, it's good. But Jesus isn't there, or at least he doesn't show up. And I think that's a problem, you know. Um, Jesus isn't the center here in this particular book. And there's a lot of them like that. There's many books about encountering heaven, but where is Jesus? You know, he should be kind of, I don't know, you know, I mean, we've got certain theologians or uh, old medieval thought that St. Peter was at the gates, you know. I don't know, I mean, I think Jesus is probably there. <laughs> I don't know which one's there, but he's there, and, and that's it. Jesus isn't the center, we are. And a lot of these well-meaning, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to say these aren't real experiences, I don't know. But uh, I think, I don't mind meeting four other people in heaven, but I think one of them would be Jesus, wouldn't he? It seems like if he's not there, is it really even heaven? You know, John Milton, uh, thy presence makes our paradise, and where thou art is heaven. It's not heaven if he's not there. In fact, Luther said, I, if, 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 if Jesus is in hell, that's where I want to go. And it's kind of a category here, because if Jesus is in hell, now hell becomes heaven. It's just the idea, where is he? And that's why we see there's books written on this, you know, that we had a little heaven on earth for a while. And as, back to, boy, the children's sermon is really helpful. You know, Jesus is in our heart. Well, really what they're saying is the Spirit indwells those who believe, and there's another little slice of heaven. We get pieces of it. We know it. 
So the presence of God is the essence of heaven. That's it. And that's one way to, if somebody says, well, how would you define hell? Below zero? Below zero with wind? Below zero with wind and no football? We're getting close, aren't we? Well, you've heard maybe that hell is the absence of God. And I don't think that's all of hell, but I think it is some of it. <laughs> I think that does explain it. We don't know what that's like. No one knows what that's like completely. No one's really ever experienced that. You know, the, 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 the most ardent atheist today still has common grace. You know, the scriptures say the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Well, I don't know. In hell, there's no rain or there's no, it's, you're just completely separate. It's just, it's just something we can't even get our mind around. Just like we sometimes can't get our mind around what heaven's going to be like because we, even though we experience God through the Spirit, through His Word, through prayer for each other, through worship, we, it's not all of God. You know, we haven't got the face-to-face -face stuff that we talked about last week. But you get, you know, the goofy slogans, you know, and if my friends aren't in heaven, I'd rather be in hell. Or the great song, in heaven there ain't no beer. That's why we drink it here. Um, I'm guessing if there's good beer, it's probably in heaven too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I understand that. You know, I remember one of my favorite shows, uh, wasn't really growing up, was in my 20s, was Cheers. You guys remember that? You know, and what was it? Where everybody knows your name. You know, that's, that's the thing about, you know, this bar, and I think that happens in bars too. It's, it's relational. It's really the, the idea. Now it can get, weird. I realize I'm not trying to say that we start, you know, open up a tap here. That's <laughs> not the point. But the, why is it that sometimes people can come to a bar and feel maybe even loved and cared for and they come to a church and they feel they don't feel that? I don't think the beer is the key. <laughs> I think it's the caring, the, the love, the, the idea. But again, the absence of God, nobody really experiences that. In fact, in Cheers or in the bar, when you have that care for the other person, that's a little bit of God working his way in there whether they know it or not. So, again, these books are good. There's been a, a lot of them around. I think they can be helpful, but just look for Jesus. I would think that he would kind of be prevalent in the heaven experience. Because you look at the, we don't have a lot. We have Revelation, which is good. And you have, you know, Isaiah 6, which is nice, and Ezekiel 1, and, and through a little later. In the teens, you've got Ezekiel kind of seeing in the throne room. You've got some of this, a little bit of Daniel, but who's always there? In the year King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting on. If Yahweh's not there, I don't know where they're at. They probably aren't in heaven. It's probably those anchovies they had with the pizza at night. Don't you know, be careful. <laughs> but again, listen. I don't. Again, I, I think if you want to read, well, you can. If if you raised your hand, raise your hand if you saw or if you read that book. Five people. All right. So ask them. You know, you got my opinion. You get their opinion. If you think it would be a book to read, um, I think it uh, is something to look at. Um, not an assignment, though. You've already got that. I won't give you another one. Yeah. So God has his plan. You look in, in Proverbs 19. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. 
And we're seeing what his purpose is, right? The big purpose. We don't always get his purpose in our lives. People worry about that. I think it's cool to try to figure out that. But God doesn't usually tell you everything. I'm not even sure I like that, but he doesn't. But he does tell us the end, right? He does tell us the big picture. Isaiah 46, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And it's nice that that is Yahweh saying this, the benevolent God that sent his son to come and die for us and his spirit to come and give us comfort and direction. So, and he's, th this, I think, you know, this is a really cool chart. We all know that. But this is supposed to be biblical. This is his idea. Of what, it's just a chart version of it. He's the one that came up with this stuff. He's the one that said, I'm going to have a new heaven and a new earth. This is his plan. And when's that going to happen? What should be your answer to that? I don't know. Why? Because he hasn't said. We worry too much about timing. This is a, it's always a nice preacher thing to do, but what if it happened this afternoon? I mean, after the Chiefs game, of course. What does that, how does that make you feel? Is that like, oh, cool? Or, can you back it up a bit? I'm not really going anywhere with that. Do you think about that? I mean, if it, is it real? It could, I'm, I'm not saying, boy, if it happens, man, that's pretty good. But I, I'm not betting on it. Now, he's already prepared things for you. You see this in Hebrews 11. But they were looking for a better place. Hebrews 11, the first verses are about what we call the hall of faith. Uh, the whole chapter is about all these people in the Old Testament who were very faithful to Yahweh, but the cross hadn't happened yet. And they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then we get that in Revelation 21. When the city, the new Jerusalem comes down, we're going to hit that a little harder. It's cubicle, which is kind of cool. I think it's probably metaphoric, but I always wondered if you're on a cube, and it's like 1,400 miles cubed. But what if you're on the bottom? I don't know how the gravity works. It's, it's metaphor. But, but the idea is he's talking about, the, he's already prepared this. It's all ready. It's not, you know, God doesn't do these things capriciously. When did God decide the cross was going to be the way? Was that, you know, you've got this theology out there. Well, you know, Jesus came and he tried to teach people and he was nice to them and he healed people and he drove out demons. He did all this great stuff. He even got fish catches, all kinds of great stuff. And then they didn't really follow him, they thought, and God's kind of like, well, this isn't working. Maybe we'll kill him. You know, that's not the way. God already had that plan, you know. Just like he has the new heaven and the new earth already ready to go. He doesn't have to wait. So heaven then isn't only our future home. It's our home already, just waiting over the next hill. It's, that's, that's, and get that mindset, folks. If nothing else on this series, get that. You were not created for this life. But this life matters, doesn't it? 
Jesus says that, you know, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Do those things that honor God. That's what you're here for. You get to know him better. Follow what he said, accept what he offers, including forgiveness. So do we have any idea what experiencing God in heaven will be like? Well, we get a little bit. Uh, Revelation helps us. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, blessed and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. That's kind of a picture of heavenly worship. It's kind of, it's got Ezekiel in the background with those four living creatures. Does that sound boring? I remember when I first read that, I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to say no. Because, you know, as Christians, are always supposed to be happy about worship, right? But sometimes we look at this and it sounds kind of boring. I mean, it's just, you're just worshiping God all the time? I think we have a little bit of a warped sense of what worship is. You know, we call this worship service. It's a service where the goal is to worship God, and we do it in different ways, obviously with song, prayer, and getting into the Word, which if you didn't know that, we're doing that now. Um, and I think what, what happens is you get to know God, you know He's not boring. That's why I always like the Aslan figure in, in the Narnia. Uh, if you haven't read those, I would recommend those. The Narnia series, it's like, he's, he's not a tame lion. I like that. This is the Christ figure. He's no one to be trifled with, but he is good. When they're asked, is he safe? I don't know if he's safe, but he is good. And safe there meant, you know, are you going to be safe in your own life? And this, he's going to kind of give you what you want. We have that theology. You just have to turn on the television for the most part to a Christian station and usually you can find that God God is here to serve you know just serve your needs and whatever you want. I'm not sure how the cross fits into that, but that's another discussion. But worship, what is worship? Is is following God something that's dynamic or is it static? Do these creatures look bored in Revelation 5? What how do we define that? What's the word worship means? It means to bow down. It means to put your belly on the ground because you're before a holy God. But it's also allegiance. You know, we do that. We pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, we're not pledge allegiance to the flag. The flag can't do anything for you. The allegiance is to the country that it represents. The same thing with worship. Your allegiance is to Yahweh. When what is allegiance but loyalty to a superior? That's the problem, right? We, we will, I don't know if, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but you're never going to be God. Did you know that? If that's your goal, you're in the wrong religion. Buddhism will help you with that, or Hinduism, more likely. No, we, we, we will always be bowing down to him because that's what we were created to do. And worshiping God is allegiance to him. How do I show allegiance? Everything in the new earth will be an act of worship because it's all going to be Loyal to Him. So we have worship service where we sing, and we, that, that's one way to put worship, but it includes direct praise. That's what they're doing here. But now we even see this in the New Testament. Paul helps us in First Thessalonians. Always be joyful. Show of hands. How many 
always follow that. Never stop praying. Are we violating that now? It's interesting, isn't it? Do these look like suggestions or commandments? What does it mean to always be joyful and never stop praying? What does it mean to be thankful in all circumstances? That one kind of helps us. For this is God's will. Well, now we know God's will. Be thankful, joyful, and don't ever stop praying. If you read 1 Thessalonians, the whole book, but especially chapter 5, it's about attitude. What is your attitude? Do you, what can you always be joyful about? Your circumstances? Notice that I love this. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Notice what it doesn't say. Be thankful for all circumstances. In World War II in England when the sirens went off and the Luftwaffe was coming, are you supposed to say thank you for the German planes bombing us? That'd be for all circumstances, but you can say thank you for the sirens, thank you for being with, thank you for what would be the main thing in life that you would want to give thanks for and be joyful for? Well, wouldn't it be the cross? That this new heaven and new earth that we talk about in the current heaven, that we're, we can be there and with God if we do have faith and we love God as he loves us? That we can be joyful about all the time. That's, I think, what he's talking about. And then we can give thanks in all circumstances. Because, again, it's kind of back to they can't take that away. Even those, what was that movie with the, the guy in the Japanese, uh, uh, Unbroken? Uh, you know, he, he, his faith became stronger in prison. Now, I don't think he was giving thanks for the prison, but he was giving thanks in the prison. And I don't think it was joyful because that one Japanese guy kept beating him up. I think he was thankful that he knew the Lord and that within that suffering, and he could think about what Christ had done for him a little bit. There's something going on there. That, that's what it means. What does it mean to never stop praying? Are we going through life thinking about, well, what would God think of this? If I had a chance to ask him, what would he say? And then, what is prayer? But doing that. Colossians 3, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And before you, I, I thought this, so maybe you are too, it's like, well, what if I mess up? Well, it's grace, right? one of the things we've talked about. How do you know you're saved? But one of the things is, do you feel guilty when you sin? <laughs> and that is something we can always go back and say, you know, the Spirit convicts us of our guilt and our weakness, and then we come back to the throne of grace with confidence and know that we can still be joyful and give thanks in those circumstances because our position before God and our names are still written in heaven. That's We can always be joyful for that. And that, even if you don't emotionally feel that, I'm sure we all go through that where you don't feel joy. But you can have that knowledge that you can't take that away from me. 
always have that core. And, you know, the chart is joyful, right? You just want to make sure you're on the blue side and not the red side, right? That's always something. I, I do have a series, uh, I think it's 17 weeks set up for hell. I'm just not sure if we're ever going to do it. I don't know if I want to talk about hell for 17 weeks. I'm not sure you want to listen to it for 17 weeks. So, uh, Suggestions are welcome. So we'll worship and praise God more deeply and better. The better we know him, the more we'll worship him. That's the thing. Again, people say, well, I come and I worship God. Well, how do you know a, how to worship a God that you don't know? How do you know what worship pleases him? Remember back when Elijah called the fire down and burnt up the animals? What were the prophets of Baal doing? Maybe we should start doing this. Would God like this? We start cutting ourselves? Would he pay attention more? Is there a scripture that says, cut thyself? If you say thyself, it's much more holy. Because King James, Shakespeare was somehow better than the rest. But, but you know, it, it, think about that. How do we know that God would not like that? Well, you have to get to know God. What worship pleases him? Well, what do we sing about for the most part? We sing about the crucifixion. We sing about the resurrection. We sing about the ascension. We sing about Jesus. I think y'all just said that you love to say the name Yahweh. I heard you singing it. Some of you are dancing while you're doing it. I think we can know. We can know him well enough to worship him better and deeply and Jesus says that, and this is the longest prayer of Jesus, if you want another prayer to look at. Now, this is Jesus praying, so we have to be careful. Uh, we're not Jesus, but he said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and whom you sent. You can't have one without the other. Do you ever think about that? Why did Jesus start the Lord's Prayer, Disciples' Prayer, <laughs> with our Father? And I'm not even talking about the father part. I'm talking about the R. Did you notice that's plural? Well, who's R? Is it us? So if we get enough people together, we're holy enough? I think he's saying R, that it's back to Matthew 11. You know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's knowledge again. A yoke. Well, how many people are in this yoke? Yeah. Who's in the other side of the yoke? Jesus. That's the R. You have no business calling God Father if you don't know the Son. It's always bugged me at Catholic games. I'm just, this is kind of a aside. And that, again, it's just a, it's a pastor, Brian, pet peeve, and maybe just stupid. Um, but it's like, how many people are saying our Father that don't know the Son? <laughs> don't just blah, blah, blah. You know, just, it's not a prayer you just put out there like some magic potion. Our Father. It's, it's grace in the first line. I didn't put that in the children's sermon because you saw we had plenty to talk about. <laughs> but that's the key. If you know the Son, now we can say our Father, and then the Father can look at you and say, I don't, who are you? It's like, Here's my friend Jesus. 
Oh, okay. Well, our Father works then. Without Jesus, the Father is no business doing that. And that's what he's saying. That's how we, this is what eternal life is about, that we know. That's the not, not knowing him because he's eternal. And now to Revelation 19 and a quick finish here. This is an interesting uh, book. It'd be fun to do a sermon series through this, but we would not have enough time in this life. I'm going to go back to verse 1 because I can. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. What's more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Just as a that's what they're talking about on your chart, red side. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down. We had them back in chapter 5. And worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, he the God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So you have two metaphors of women in here, don't you? Did you catch the first one? Prostitute? And then what do you have here? Bride. The bride is the church. Those who truly believe, the prostitute is those who don't. This is a collective term. It's a metaphor. You see this both in the Old Testament and the New. So when you think about back to our, our Father, yes, it has to have Jesus, but I think, again, we have to be careful not making it just Jesus and me. We are not individual brides of Christ, but collectively. I didn't come up with this stuff. Can you encounter God by yourself. I hope so. But is that the only way you're supposed to encounter it? It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like that's the way God wanted it. Our connection to Christ is personal. Each person has to decide, is this, am I going to follow this God or not? Am I going to surrender my life to him? Am I going to have allegiance, loyalty to this superior? Yes, it's personal, but it's not supposed to be private. Then and now, we will know God better by seeking him together. That's what God seems to think. Whether it's a Bible study, a life group, or a worship service, this is how we do it. We do it together, and that helps us know him better. So, again, always encouraging each other. Think about those things. How can I get to know him better? You can get to know him really well in your personal devotions and your time by yourself with God, and I encourage you to do that. But don't give up. Well, let us not neglect our meeting together. An apostle told us that. <laughs> As some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Think about that. 
Think about the fact that God gives us each other to know him better. That's part of what we do. And any time we can get to know him better, then we're showing more allegiance to him. Because really it comes down to, I think what this verse is telling us is that God created us as communal beings to help each other. That's part of what we do. And part of what we do also is to give some of our knowledge of God to someone else that may not have it. Bear each other's burdens, as Galatians tells us. Because really it comes down to this. If you think you can know God well enough on your own, you're either arrogant or ignorant. You're ignorant, you're too prideful, you don't need anybody else. Or you're ignorant, you just don't know what blessing God has given by putting people in our lives that can help us know Him better. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that we can pray to you as Father through your Son. We know that each person needs to make a decision to decide do they want to follow your Son and come to you uh, through him or not. Uh, what we do as a church and as individual Christians and collective Christians is help people figure out how to do that. But let us remember that it's about the church, the assembly, the gathering, the people coming together, that we know each other better and we know you better by coming together in your name and worshiping always. We pray in your son's name. Amen.